Andrei So here we are again. Today is another episode when we are going international again. So second international guest here. Uh, and usually I have this tendency to describe the guests that are usually on this show. So how would I describe today's guest? Uh, first of all, he knows his training stuff. He has a good sense of humor about his, all the memes he shares and so on. But also he's a professor at Lehman College. And if, if, I, if I would have one word to describe this guy is thick. This guy is thick as hell. This guy is Mike Israel. It's a pleasure and privilege to have you on, sir. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be described as thick. Is that thick spelled properly or thick with two C's at the end? Maybe two three C's, C's. Two C's. Wow. It's two C's. Right. So you know, that's very, I think very honorable. Perhaps there will be time when the third C will be added there, but you know. You just have to that, get bigger. Yeah, that remains to be seen. <laughs> or maybe you, maybe we can uh, replace C's with K's. Like two Oof. K's. Three K's is dangerous. That stands for a racist organization. So maybe not that one. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it has to be like two K's or four K's, you know, then we're safe. <laughs> for sure. Okay. Uh, so let's get this going. But before we get into deep into, into training methodology, I have some random questions to ask you as well that, is, uh, that have always interested me. First of all, uh, I do enjoy all the memes you share and your sense of humor, but there's one thing that has left me wondering, is all the Russian memes, you know. Uh, what is your connection to, to Russia or, any, or anything of a sort? Is there any connection? Yeah, I'm actually, I was born in Russia and I uh, lived wow. there for seven years of my life. And I speak Russian fluently at the level of a, a, a low intelligence seven-year-old child. And uh, also, you? Uh, you know, so my parents, uh, speak fluent Russian, my sister, and a lot of my friends do. So yeah, I'm full on, uh, full on Russian. So, so basically you are able to right now utter some Russian words or sentences. Да, конечно, если вы хотите. So I even, uh, even use the formal Russian for you. So oh. that, you know. Okay, это очень приятно. Очень приятно. Yeah. I, how much Russian do you know? Uh, I know a fair bit because I'm residing in northeast of Europe. So quite next to Russia okay. and south of Finland. So we do consider, oh. ourselves, we do consider our, ourselves to be more of a Nordic country, European, but we do have a strong Russian influence here. So yeah. But I've I, been to the south of Finland and I learned one word. Erkale. Good, man. <laughs> there, there are other ones as well. So I'm not going to sure. utter them here, but you know, this is, this is one of the most top two, top two of the most top two Finnish words. Yeah. That's yeah. Great. I'm not sure if I, if I, if I dare to utter the, the, the number one, but, uh, Ooh, but there's yeah. a number one. Yeah. It's, it's a very uh, bad. It's a feminine one. Uh -huh. <laughs> so does yeah. it refer to the female genital anatomy? It does. I see. Well, you know, maybe some sometime later. <laughs> okay, so really, really cool to know that. Uh, another, other, another random question would be that uh, uh, you are probably the leading figure of the Renaissance periodization. Uh, what uh, meaning does Renaissance have in this uh, in this name? Does it have some sort of a background to it? Yeah, it actually has two. So the one. One of the two meanings is there is a company in the United States in New York 
that uh, is a hedge fund. They do stock trading and mm -hmm. it's called Renaissance Technologies. And uh, Nick Shaw and I, the founder, the co-founder of RP, we used to train folks that were working in the finance industry in New York. And uh, they started sort of telling us and referencing and hinting at Renaissance Technologies and the way they spoke about it. And these were all other hedge fund managers. They spoke about it kind of in a reverential tone. And, wow, that's very special. And I was like, what are you guys talking about? And there's just look it up, look it up. So I look it up online. And it turns out that Renaissance Technologies was pretty much the first big fund and certainly the biggest and most successful that used what was called sort of quantitative investing, where, you know, it used to be the stock picking occurred, right? People analyzing strategies in their head and trying to make predictions and use heuristics, nothing formal, kind of like a lot of gut feelings even. Like, oh, I think, I think the stock is going up. I like where the company's going. And uh, the folks that started and, and continue to make Renaissance Technologies very profitable, they're sort of not big fans of that. And they tried to actually find out how to take uh, the stock market and break it down into something a little bit predictable using uh, math, science, and computer modeling and algorithms. So mm -hmm. they essentially made something very subjective, a little bit more objective. And well, gee, they made billions and billions of dollars doing it, but it's also, it was all very top secret. It's one of the only funds that a huge um, fraction of the people they hired were PhDs in physics, com uh, computational theory, uh, mathematics, and you're like, why are they hiring these folks to work in the stock market? Well, it turns out they were just programming supercomputers to do AI algorithms that would do the trading for them. So they didn't make any calls like, oh, I think this is going up and down. They just did computer modeling, which to us was just fascinating. But you could take something that has just mostly heuristics and gut feelings and turn it into uh, sort of an, uh, an enterprise for objective analysis and computation. And that was inspiring to us because that's what we were seeking to do with fitness. Um, you know, like there's a, a lot of people you ask, how do I do, how do I get fit? How do I get healthier? How do I drop body fat? How do I get stronger? And they'll tell you sort of ideas that are in some way generally can be effective, but are disconnected from an underlying logical framework. And uh, we're not so big of fans of that because if you have general ideas, they tend to fail a lot of the time. Another problem with that is you don't know why they're failing because you've never sort of put them into a mathematical context where you could test them appropriately and really see how rigorous they are. So it was our goal at Renaissance Periodization to take periodization, the sort of approach to sport training, and to make it more objective and quantifiable and use mathematics and, and science to actually give much more reliable results. And the, so that was a big part of the meaning. And the second part is, so Renaissance is rebirth, right? During the Renaissance period in, in Europe, it was essentially like the Dark Ages and sort of backwards version of Christianity had made looking into how the world works at a deep level, well, kind of illegal and punishable by death. <laughs> and then at the, during the Renaissance is when that freedom uh, was sort of imposed and, and restrictions were lifted. And there was a rebirth of asking questions about why, looking into science and reason and logic and actually understanding the world and making it better. So if you look at all of the indices of how much better the world got, you know, during the Greek and Roman times, it went up pretty fast because of things were thought of. And then there was this dark ages where things got actually a little worse and then stayed shitty for a long time. And then during the Renaissance, it launched this entire sort of industrial revolution came after, and now we're just on this crazy spiral upward. So to us, we named the company that uh, because in fitness, when Nick and I started to uh, sort of join in the fitness industry in like, you know, the year 2010, 2005 to 2010, we just entered the fitness industry where this was pretty much before most of the evidence-based fitness community was even coalesced online. 
And if you wanted to get in shape, you had to listen to coaches that would say, oh, do this, not that, and don't eat pineapple or eat a lot of pineapple. And it was all just random nonsense as far as we could tell. And we just, uh, you know, we saw a lot of our same clients, all these uh, folks that were really wealthy in Manhattan paying money to people that just didn't know what they were doing. And we didn't like to see them get ripped off. We wanted to provide them something more dependable. And we thought it was time for a little bit of a rebirth of science, logic, and reason. And we had some small part to play in that and continue to play a part in demystifying fitness and making it more objective and scientific. Uh, so this is probably the second part of your answer was something that I was uh, thinking of that, you know, re renaissance, it's tied to like enlightenment and rebirth and so on. Sure. But, you know, if bro science was a church, if bro science had its own church, then you would probably uh, be practicing blasphemy in their eyes. That's right. Like a really, really jacked Galileo. Yes. So that's how I see myself. <laughs> yeah, working working with the devil, working with the science devil. Of course, isn't isn't Perkala like the some like devil's grandmother or something like that? It some means something to that Perkala effect. means ass. That's it, really. Yeah, ass. I thought it meant something. You're behind. Else. That's what it means. <laughs> Sorry, other Finnish people man. lied to me. There was a lot of other <laughs> Finns that said it had a deeper meaning than that. Or maybe maybe it has, but you know, if you if you were to translate it, you know, directly, then it simply means your two of your butt cheeks. But, but oh, yeah, <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Okay, but uh, now if we are to touch a little bit about training methodology, then you know, two of your books that re that have really influenced me and my work as well has been, you know, the book "How Much Should I Train." considering the, uh, the volume training landmarks and the other one, the scientific principles of hypertrophy training. So the landmark, uh, the volume landmarks uh, I have myself used to give lectures to my undergrads at a strength and conditioning class that I'm running. So your work has definitely influenced me as an upcoming lecturer in, in university. So, so yeah, I'm not, I'm a big fan, not only uh, of, uh, of uh of, of the training you do but also the things that you preach as well well thank you so, so much it's, it's an honor so if uh we are to talk about a little bit about volume landmarks uh what is the history behind them is this something that you came up with yourself is is it mainly used in uh, weight training or is it practiced uh, in other types of sports as well so what's the background of those uh, landmarks yeah great question so the genesis of the volume landmarks actually came from other sport and really had nothing to do with weight training at all. And the first landmark that uh, we sort of figured out was MRV, maximum recoverable volume. And it really started with um, me and very quickly uh, began to involve my my great friend and colleague, Dr. James Hoffman, who is a co-author on pretty much all of my books and uh, a huge, huge factor in the development of these concepts. So him and I were at the, um, at East Tennessee State University, and we're in a sport physiology PhD program. And we were also assigned as sport coaches, and uh, so strength and conditioning coaches and sport scientists to various athletic teams, volleyball, soccer, tennis, so on and so forth. And we would consult the coaches on how to integrate weight training programs into their sport preparation, and also on how to structure the entirety of their sport preparation program within the principles and confines of sports science so that they had the best possible outcome, right? And one of the things we continue to run into was this idea that if you have modalities of training that can help, a lot of coaches, not all, a lot have just simply wanted to stack them one on top of the other um, as if it was going to help more. So we would say, you know, we should be doing some weight training here. 
and say, okay, we continue to practice volleyball or soccer or tennis for eight hours a day. And then in addition, we do an hour of weight training a day. And then in addition to that, we do an hour of flexibility training a day. And then in addition to that, we do an hour of meetings about sports psychology per day. And at some point, we sort of had to communicate the idea to them, which was novel to some of them. And many of them knew on an intuitive level, they just need a little bit of a reminder of like, look, there exists this total amount of effort that you can do and actually recover from, right? And if you do any more than that, it actually makes you worse. Um, and if you do under that amount, potentially it makes you better. And if you do way under that amount, then you can do a little more until you get to that top end. And then it's okay. It's like a, the exact analogy is like how much, depending on how thirsty you are, uh, how much do you want to fill your glass with chocolate milk, right? Well, you know, if you have a halfway full glass, halfway to MRV, you're, you know, you're getting some chocolate milk, you're doing well. But you know, if you really want some more, you can fill it more. And as you get really close to the brim of the glass, it becomes very difficult for you to continue to pour in chocolate milk without it spilling over and causing you know, more of a mess than you wanted. And then it's a, you know, you get your couch dirty with chocolate milk. It doesn't wash out. It smells, your hands are dirty. It's, it's, it's not a good thing. It's not something you want to backfire. So basically our consultations with these coaches led us to repeat this sort of general idea to them that, that there's this limit and you can't exceed it. And if you're going to do more of something, you have to do a little bit less of something else. And oftentimes in a phasic relationship. So sometime of the year, you do more weight training, less sport training. Other times of the year, you do more sport training, less weight training. And it sort of exists in a balance that's capped by this thing. We didn't have a name for the thing. And it gets kind of annoying to repeat yourself in generalities and, and vagueness. So we said, you know, the most volume you can recover from, the maximum recoverable volume. And we just started saying that. I started saying it. And then uh, I started having conversations with a few folks, the first of which and the greatest contributor was Dr. James Hoffman. We sort of uh, really threw around the idea, really sharpened it. And then after that, it became a thing. And it was the first one we introduced into the sort of the, to the lay public. And then eventually it, it had a whole lot of other landmarks naturally derived from it. Uh, some of these uh, were derived from a variety of situations, and some actually were not derived from, but really specified to a much greater extent, just through discussions with other folks in the industry. I had a few series of debates with a few folks, including uh, Dr. Eric Helms, and he provided some really good feedback on the limitations of the MRV concept, to which then we went back to the drawing board and sort of propped up the MEV concept, minimum effective volume, to really describe where that is in relationship to MRV, what it means to train within the zone between the two, what it means to train outside of that zone, should you be looking to progress from one to the other, and then slowly other layers were added, and today we have the modern landmark. So interestingly enough, they apply really easily to fitness and lifting because they're very easily objectifiable, but uh, they were derived from uh, conversations about sport training and just the realization that they actually do exist. You know, like they really do exist. They're really out there somewhere in the ether. And then some folks have said, you know, I invented the, the MRV. I discovered MRV and James and I discovered it. We didn't invent it. You, you have a maximum recoverable volume. We don't ever have to tell you that it's there no matter how, now the only thing is, are you aware of it? And do you plan your training accordingly? And uh, one thing I always like to say, and, uh, is if you are not aware of it, you could run into some really bad situations. If you are aware of it, you run into fewer bad situations and your training just goes more predictably, So, which is a good thing. Yeah, I think it's like a universal law as well as, for example, for training maximum recoverable volume, but for, for alcohol, for example, you know, maximum consumable amount, you know, before you get, uh, before you 
you start to throw up and so on. But actually, 100%. partly you you also answered the next question that I wanted to ask is that if you look at strength training um, as a discipline on, on its own, then uh, the landmarks are, I, I think you would agree, really easily uh, applicable there. For example, because on strength training we count you know reps and and, and you know kgs or pounds and so on, so it's really easy to to see where you're at, or for example, if your progress starts to stall and so on, for example, when you compare with some other discipline, for example, I don't know, tennis or soccer or, or any of the sort, the the volume landmark, or for example, to identify MRV or, or minimal effective volume is much more difficult. Would you agree on that? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. In some sports, it's really hard when they have lots of components. So you could say in soccer is pretty hard, you, but you could throw in a GPS unit and see how much they run around and how fast their average velocity is. That's okay. We got a reasonable idea. What about gymnastics? I mean, fuck, they have like 10 different events and 10 different, you know, difficulty levels and 10 different degrees of how hard they're trying that day. And it's just muscle specific, joint specific. Like you could have a really hard upper body focus day. And how hard is that compared to a really hard day with a lot of bounding and jumping? It gets really intense. But generally speaking, there are always ways to do a decent job, at least, of quantifying how much stuff you're doing. And, and a lot of folks get into this trap where, you know, perfect becomes the enemy of good, where they say, well, there's no way to exactly measure this, so it's worthless. It's like, ooh, you know, I don't think it's worthless. I used to get feedback, um, not anymore for some reason. I'm sure other folks think this, just don't, I don't see it anymore. This used to say, MRV is a worthless um, concept because it varies so much, you know, because what about different lifestyle and different sleep and different food? And I have a twofold response to that. One, if it really, if your sleep and food and everything really vary that much that it impacts your recovery greatly, you're not really so serious about the sport of bodybuilding or powerlifting or weightlifting. So you can feel free to see yourself out of any thought about it whatsoever. Like if you sometimes get four hours of sleep and sometimes get eight and you're worried about the volume landmarks, you've got bigger problems than the volume landmarks, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's like worrying about being a you know culinary expert when you don't really have like any food around to cook with. Like, gee, you know, get some food first, now we're talking. And then secondly, just because things vary doesn't mean they're uh, not informative because they usually have relative like statistical boundary layers of variation. So for example, let's say your MRV for your back within, if you train three times a week for your back is 20 to 25 sets per week. Now we don't know if it's sometimes it's 20, sometimes it's 25, sometimes it's sort of uh, stochastically located somewhere between the two. But is that completely uninformative because it has a variance of sort of like a, a total boundary of five? Uh, well, not really because someone say, hey man, I've got this incredible back workout, you gotta try it. It's uh, three sessions a week and it's a sum total of nine exercises, sorry, nine sets. What do you think? You say, well, you know, gee, that's a good MEV maybe, but I, I can probably benefit from a lot more. And they're like, well, how do you know? Like, well, you know, the minimum I seem to cap out at is 20. If I'm doing nine, like I can tell you for almost a fact that I can do at least about 10 more sets of back and still recover, probably still benefit to some extent. And then if someone conversely tells you, yeah, have this great back program, it's 40 total sets or 30 total sets, you're going to be like, look, I, I don't know what the kind of training this is. It's highly unlikely I'll be able to survive it. So you still have some degree of information. It's, it's kind of like asking someone, hey, did you, what is your appetite typically like? How, how big of meals do you typically eat? when they're asking you a restaurant to go to. And you say, well, it sort of depends how hungry I am. Well, you know, it doesn't infinitely depend. You're not going to very, you know, it's probably not going to, you don't have the kind of appetite where you go to a sushi restaurant, you have two pieces of sushi and you're done. It's probably very rare. You're also not going to go and have a hundred pieces and still be not full. It's also really rare. So you say, you know, normally eat like 30 to 
50 pieces of sushi. That's an inform that's an informative thing. The, the the boundary of 30 to 50 is incredibly informative versus infinity. So already we can work with something and at least we can't make grandiose mistakes. We can just make small mistakes. And if you're trying to get good results, small mistakes are way better than grandiose mistakes. Mm -hmm. I, I just love the way you bring up the analogies of food. <laughs> Yeah, but I don't know why at all. That seems to make me easy, easily understand it. So. Yeah, but you know, yeah, as far since you mentioned uh, uh, nine sets for back and also exercises, I think many people even today are rather obsessed about the number of exercises they have to perform rather than sets. Now, who, who really gives a shit how many exercises you do? What really counts is the total amount of sets because, you know, even if you do different exercises, especially for back or chest or whatever, then the movement patterns would overlap anyway. <laughs> So, so yeah, this something that I see is yeah, people really try to, you know, cram together as many exercises as they can for body parts. You know, probably trying to think that they would shotgun everything possible, but what is being left uh, unnoticed is the total amount of sets that they perform. And you know, also the amount of sets should be dynamic in in, in a time frame. You know, the sets should grow the number of sets. Welcome to my frustration with muscle magazines in the early yeah. 2000s when I started reading them. I mean, you would get like bodybuilders say like five by 10 of this, four by 10 of that, five by 12 of this, six by 10 of that. And I'm like, first of all, who, who the fuck actually does this? I mean, nobody can survive this. How close to failure are these sets? Is there five by 10? Clearly at least one of the sets or is it, at least four of the sets could not have been to failure you can't repeat yes. the same effort over and over. And also you're like, yeah, there seems to be a lot of exercises and a lot of the things that seem to bother myself and probably you is like, like a, a wild redundancy in exercises. Like I, I see guys like in one day go like barbell row, dumbbell row, cable row, machine row. I'm like, for the love of fucking God, they just do two more sets of each one of those and just only do two of them. Why yeah. are we doing? And also what are you going to do next month when one of those gets stale? What do you replace it with? You, you went through all your rows. There's nothing else to do. I think people seem to think that the more exercises you do, like you say, there's the shotgun thing where they can just knock out all the birds with all the stones. And it turns out that just fundamentally, you know, most muscles or areas of muscularity of the body have like one to three angles and ways of training from which they should be hit for complete development. And you don't even need to hit all of those in one session. You can just hit them all in one week. As a matter of fact, if you hit them generally, you can hit them every other mesocycle. So the idea that you have to hit every upper chest, inner chest, lower chest, this and that is, uh, you know, to some degree, just a, a common error of your reasoning that people just don't know any better. And to some degree, a little bit of an obsessive compulsive thing. I, I wonder if you agree with me that some people have this OCD thing where they're like, I gotta check all the boxes. Do you, do you think that plays a role in why people do 10 exercises or what do you think? That, that is especially with chest, you know? Yeah. You have to do the bench press, then you have to do the dumbbell press on the incline, then you have to do a fly movement, then you have to do a cable crossover, crossover. then you have to finish. Then you have to finish it off with uh, just dominant dips or something like that. Yes. Oh my God, we're on the same page. On the same page, <laughs> exactly. Because if you don't get the lower chest, you're just going to be a person with no friends and no future. Everyone knows this. Yeah, that probably goes with biceps as well. Not so much for legs, though. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to do legs, you know. Well, you know, if you look at some of the pro bodybuilder routine, they do get into that. So with you know, like so they'll do squats, they'll do leg press, they'll do hack squat, they'll do leg extensions, they'll do lunges, and they're like, Oh, I really got my quads. And you can automatically tell people don't train hard when they do like three or four working sets, working sets, 
for an exercise and they do like five exercises for quads. Like in all the RP training videos, we'll come in and we'll do at most two quad exercises. And people will be like, really just two exercises? And halfway through the first one, they're like, I think I'm gonna die. And we're like, well, yeah, there's a good chance of that. So a lot of that also stems from people not training sufficiently uh, high relative effort. And then they feel like they need more exercises because they're just kind of, you know, like if your idea of putting salt and, and food in a salt shaker as you go, like that and you go away you may need 10 shakes of salt but if you do really good shakes you may need three and that's good enough uh you know and also like for me one of the another thing just on a personal note is why do you want to like switch machines that many times and warm up that many times like every time you switch a machine let's say you finish leg press you're going to hack squat you got to find your foot placement again you have to load the machine again you might have to do one or two field sets to feel out the way you don't just go straight to your set of 10 and a half squat because it'll be an awful set you might get hurt so it ends up being like if I'm doing four or five exercises for a single muscle group on a single session, I have to do so many warm-ups and so much switching. And, you know, the old lady's on the machine right now, so you have to wait for it. Like when I get on leg press or a squat, I'm there for a while. And good news, because it hits a huge majority of the musculature, I don't need to go anywhere. And I don't want to go anywhere. It's just crazy that some people think they have to do these things. Uh, actually, I can comment on this. I have this a little theory of mine. For example, if somebody is to do like this uh, four sets, especially four sets, eight to 12 reps is a classical one, or five sets of 10. If you are to do that, you're probably training half-assed. And if you are training half-assed, then you don't need to find your foot placement or warm up. Then you just, you know, <laughs> do your exercises half-assed. You know, you're trying to sure. hit the volume and that's it. But uh, on a serious <laughs> note, you know, stimulus to fatigue ratio. That uh, is some is uh, you know another important thing because if we have if 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 we are to view recovery as a resource then this resource is limited and we basically we won't want to have the best bang for our buck for choosing exercises and so on and you know this is something that I have learned from you but it's also if you think about it it's also logical there is some machines that you have to incorporate in order to fill out this or use those this uh, recovery as a resource um, as, as best as you can. Now, aside from what the stimulus to fatigue ratio is, I would also would like to ask you, if somebody is to find out what stimulus to fatigue ratio is and starts incorporating, you know, the best exercises that are tilted to the stimulus side, is it possible that somebody, upcoming trainers, could go too anal about uh, stimulus to fatigue ratio and start to use maybe only exercises that are, are machines or go like this, uh, uh, like most pros train, you know, using only machines. Because I see you doing, you know, for your quad movements, like only squats, different squats and hack squats and leg presses. Uh, so again, my question would be, is there a chance that somebody would uh, interpret SFR in a wrong way and start to pick uh, two easy exercises in the pursuit of hypertrophy? Yeah. Yes, the, the answer is yes. So um, SFR tells you a ratio of stimulus to fatigue, but it doesn't tell you much about the absolute magnitude of the stimulus that you're getting. Mm -hmm. So uh, what's a decent analogy here? Like uh, if you, I think I used this in, in another context, I think in another podcast quite recently. So if you are paid $5 an hour to just sit and scroll on your phone, and have drinks whenever you want, the money to fatigue ratio is incredible because you have no fatigue accumulation. You're actually dropping fatigue, but you're getting paid in money. 
this, because fatigue accumulation is actually negative because it's falling, it's difficult to beat that stimulus to fatigue ratio, no matter how much money a job pays you if that job incurs any fatigue. So you get $5 an hour and you have very, very good stimulus to fatigue ratio, money to fatigue ratio in this case, stimulus being money. Now, if someone said, look, you know, you, you know, clearly you, say, you know how to code in computer languages or you know how to promote marketing materials or you know how to do basic science, we're gonna pay you $150 an hour but that work is going to be a little tough and it's going to, after eight hours, it's going to wear you out. You're going to need a break and go home, spend time with your family, work out, sleep and come back for another eight hour shift. You say, okay, which, what's the better stimulus to fatigue ratio? Well, actually the job in which you paid $5 to scroll on your phone is better because of it's incredibly low fatigue. The problem is the stimulus magnitude is not that great. And if we measure muscle gains, we measure muscle tissue. And if you measure work gains, we can measure it in how much money you're making. Well, look, you know, eight hours, $150 an hour, you're getting rich fast. Now, $5 an hour, you could do 24 hours a day that job. But that's not much money. You're just not accruing a lot of wealth. And you could say, well, you look, my stimulus to fatigue ratio is great, but it doesn't really say much about how much actual money you're making. So a lot of people will get exercises that really isolate the shit out of their muscles. There's a current obsession in the industry uh, with lats. You know, like you have to isolate the lats. You got it. Nobody knows how to turn on their lats. You got to feel the lats. If you can't turn on your lats, you got to row in this real specific way. You got to use, you can't, you can't grab a dumbbell like this if you're going to isolate your lats. It's got to be like a hook grip or two fingers. And all of a sudden you're using 20 kilos instead of 70 and you know, but, but it's all lats and it's, well, it's very good stimulus to fatigue ratio, except you'd have to do like 10 trillion reps of that to actually see any meaningful muscle growth because what we term the raw stimulus magnitude, the height of that stimulus is just total dog shit. So that absolutely happens. And if you show, show someone say bent over row, barbell bent over row, does it have a great stimulus to fatigue ratio? It's a good one. It's not a great one, right? But the raw stimulus is fucking massive. So yeah, you'll get fatigued doing rows, but your back will get huge. And remember, that's the point. The point isn't just to economize on fatigue. It is to get as much stimulus as possible. The only real reason we're worried about the fatigue is we don't want it to be excessive so that it impedes us from doing potentially more and getting more out of it. So there is a balance there between raw stimulus magnitude and stimulus to fatigue ratio, whereby we want the exercises with good SFRs, but ones with really high raw stimulus magnitudes to make sure we're actually getting a lot of value, not just leaving the gym like, oh, that was easy. And I grew a little bit of muscle. Well, you're not there to grow a little bit of muscle. You're there to grow a lot of muscle. And sometimes that means doing the hard shit. And sometimes when you're a really big bodybuilder, You've been training for years, you're super strong, your mind-muscle connection is intense, and you train the rest of your body super hard, that you don't have trouble with stimulus anymore. Recovery is hugely impactful, hugely impinging on your progress. You may do more machines. You may do more isolation because for you, doing like barbell squats all the way down is just going to cause lots of stimulus, but you can get almost as much with hack squats with much less fatigue because you are big and strong enough that such a more isolated movement still fucks you up. But if you weigh 120 pounds, if, you're, if it's your first year of training and you're like, I'm only doing leg extensions and single leg lunges because I don't want fatigue. So first of all, your ability to tolerate fatigue is enormous. And second of all, the raw stimulus magnitude for you for just those two movements is just not going to be that high. So a year later, you're going to be healthy. You're not going to be tired and you're not going to be that big. That's a problem. You should better be better off doing some squats, generating a little bit of fatigue, pay the cost to be the boss, and then you're going to be huge and a little bit tired. Well, look, you know, bodybuilding fucks you up anyway. You know, sometimes you got to pay the cost and you got to be concerned with raw stimulus magnitude, plain and simple. 
Mm-hmm. So are there any good recommendations or, or like bullet points that we can use in order to identify the best exercise that have the best SFRs, for example? Is it like con- connected to range of motion? So basically it could be a free weight exercise, but if you're able to perform this exercise with a really good range of motion, then then it would also prov- provide a really good SFR. For example, if we are to compare deep squats with uh, conventional deadlifts, for example, or even sumo deadlifts. So they would probably are both free weight exercises, but uh, the SFR are pretty different in that sense. Or how would you say, how can we identify the best exercises uh, with the, the most optimal SFRs? Yeah. So I think that, you know, there are at least three factors on the stimulus side and a few more on the fatigue side. On the stimulus side, we want some combination of tension and or perception and or burn in the target muscle when you're doing it. So if you're doing uh, a row and you don't feel anything in your back, but your forearms and biceps hurt a lot, that's kind of a problem. If you're doing squats and you're doing a sumo stance and you're sitting really far back instead of down, you're like, yeah, I feel this in my glutes and lower back. And someone's like, what about your quads? You're like, I don't really feel a lot of tension in my quads. Like, but are they burning in a high rep side? You're like, no, my lower back's on fire, but my quads are good. Like, that, that's a problem. That probably means we're not using that muscle, pushing it to its lim- you know, limiting factors. Another one is pump. You know, after multiple sets, especially uh, with lots of volume, you know, do we get a robust pump in the target muscle? Like if someone teaches you how to do a forearm curl, like a wrist curl, and after three or four sets of it, they're like, how do your forearms feel? You're like, mm, I don't know, my fingers are tired, but I don't have a pump in my forearms. You're like, oh, gee, you know, if we push, it's, it's pretty reliable that we push muscles close to failure repeatedly. They do generate a pump. And that, that's probably a pretty good sign that we're pushing them to the limits and that's how they're going to grow. And then the last one, because <clears throat> you could just term it sort of disruption, the target muscle should have a sort of notable element of it is being disrupted somehow. This could mean that your rep strength for that target muscle is, is exercises that involve it is really down a lot. Um, it could mean that the muscle feels what we call perturbed, where a perturbation, where you know you may have some cramping in the muscle. The muscle may feel really strange, like holy shit. Um, it may have trouble uh, modulating smooth movements. So, for example, if someone's like, dude. This quad workout's gonna fucking annihilate your quads. And afterwards, you try to walk down the stairs and you physically can't step down the stairs without your quads shaking. You're like, oh, yeah. And someone's like, hey, did your, did your quads get hit? You're like, yeah, they got fucking hit. I can't even extend my fucking knee. It's clearly the quads are involved. Now, if someone's like, hey, this is a great quad workout and then your glutes are cramping on you but your quads feel 100% fine, uh, then maybe you didn't really hit them. So if you can check all three of those boxes, fuller range of motion isn't really as beneficial on its own. It's more detectable beneficially because it really just jacks all those up. If you do a partial range of motion, you feel some tension in your quads, for example. If you dunk a squat to full depth or a leg press to full depth, a lot of times when we train folks on the RP YouTube channel, they'll do their first super deep leg press hack squat or squat. And after a few reps, they look at us usually like, oh God. What did I sign up for? Because their quads at the distal area feel like they're being pulled apart with this crazy tension. And that's just not something you can get out of partial range of motion nearly as easily. And then, you know, what about the burn? Like, oh my God, you do full range of motion lifting and the burn is just psychotic. You're like, get me out of here. And then the pump is insane. And of course, perturbation is we have people get up out of the leg press now. You did five sets and they try to stand up and they can't. Like, gee, your quads are probably pretty beat up. And then of course, there's the fatigue side 
which is measured in a few ways. One of the most important ones is uh, sort of joint and connective tissue disruption. Like if I have you do some back training and your like spinal cord feels like it got hurt, your bones feel bad, but your back isn't very pumped, like that's not great. Your hips feel sore, that's not great. But if that's very little, like if you do some kind of back movement and you're like, dude, I have a huge lat pump. And then someone's like, how are your shoulders and, and your spinal and spinal cord and your hips feeling? You're like, great, golden, I don't even feel anything. That's a real good sign. That means you can train that exercise with more volume, more frequency, and not pay the price of having to slow down. And then, of course, there's sort of like two sub-factors of systemic fatigue. Um, it can be detected a number of ways, but one is like, you know, how much does that exercise uh, cause systemic fatigue can be measured by how much it affects unrelated muscle groups. So for example, the deadlift, if you do high rep deadlifts and then you try to do uh, pressing movement, the deadlift has not uses none of the muscles that you use for pressing, but you can, the deadlift tires you systemically so much. It, it generates so much systemic fatigue that your pressing can be down by like 50 kilos after deadlift because you're just dead on the inside. Right. And, and, and that's a really bad deal because you know, you, you, you don't just train one movement or one lift almost ever. You need the rest of your body. So some exercises are great at growing a certain muscle group, but they poison the rest of your training so much that, you know, yeah, your deadlift's going to go up, your back's going to get big, but what about your legs? What about your pushing muscles? What about your biceps? Well, you're too tired to train those super well. So if you had an exercise that trained your back as well as the deadlift, maybe the bent over row, um, just as an example, this is all very individual. And then it didn't impact your chest training much. Well, then yeah, it would overall make you a better lifter. Um, and of course, there's kind of the psychological component of sort of how much does an exercise require you to psych up for it and how mentally fatigued does it make you? Some exercises you just jam and groove. It doesn't really feel like you're trying very hard, but you get all the huge pump and burn. A really good example in my case, not everyone else's, is a deficit push-up with a little bit of weight. Like for higher reps, man, it just the deficit does all the work. Like going down for that super deep eccentric stretch fucks your pecs up and it doesn't even really ever feel that hard you're just like holy shit like i could do a million of these but i don't have to because they're they fuck me up so much but if you have like you know a, a barbell push press for example like in order to push press a lot you got to get psychologically amped up because shit heavy weight can fucking crush you and kill you and all of a sudden you're trying like really hard but you're not getting a ton of muscle activation and involvement for the price so if you leverage all those first three things against the last three things that's how the stimulus to fatigue ratio is born you essentially just want to maximize the first three you know tension and burn pump and muscle disruption and minimize essentially the three factors it's really just two uh fatigue of the joints and connective tissues we want to be as low as possible and systemic fatigue as low as possible as long as back to our first conversation about the SFR, as long as that desire to reduce systemic fatigue doesn't impinge on the magnitude of the stimulus. Because we don't want to say, oh, you know, squats really fatigue me. We, but what about for quads? How do they hit your quads? What about the stimulus? And so, well, the stimulus is great. Well, it means the SFR is not terrible and it's probably worthwhile to do. Mm -hmm. Good. So since the clock is ticking, I would be really happy and uh, to touch on th three more little points. Therefore, I'm going to jump into the next one right away. So about exercises, you know, once you complete your meso and go into another one, um, we tend to rotate exercises or go into other exercises. So what is your comments on rotating exercises and so on? Why do we have to rotate exercises, even though they might look similar? For example, I've seen you do like machine pullovers, then, you know, straight arm cable pull downs and so on. Uh, does the rule of accommodation apply or uh, how does the uh, switching up of exercises play into maximizing hypertrophy training? Yeah, great question. 
So I would say that the, the, the one big rule, and there's a few smaller sub rules, but the one big rule you have to, if you have to learn any rule about exercise deletion and replacement, the one big rule is there should be a purpose. Okay, so if I ask you, why did you change that exercise? You should be able to tell me why. You're not just be like, no, nah, I don't know. I'm not sure. Felt right? like it. I felt like it. And the, feel, the felt like it can actually be examined and underneath can be a good reason. Uh, so staleness is one of the reasons we switch out exercises is when the exercise feels so crappy, you no longer get a great mind-muscle connection. You have to do more sets to get a good pump. If you do that many sets and go that hard, your joints start to hurt. Some exercises, you just your muscles can connect to it better and you can get a better stimulus to fatigue ratio. And that's the real big thing. So the need usually comes from a stimulus to fatigue ratio. If you start doing an exercise, it usually has a pretty high stimulus to fatigue ratio because you haven't done it so long. The novelty alone boosts the stimulus like crazy. You don't have to use a lot of load and a lot of sets and reps. So the fatigue is concomitantly lower. And usually after weeks and weeks and weeks, the stimulus to fatigue ratio actually goes up because you your technique gets better, your joint alignment gets better. You know, you used to hack squat with your feet like this, but you actually learn your feet like that is better. And all of a sudden your exercise is actually clicking better. Your quads are getting better um, stimulus. The joints are hurting less because you're finding your groove. And so the, the SFR tends to climb for some number of weeks, uh, some number of months even. And at some point it plateaus because it's, the exercise is developing a little bit more staleness, but also it's improving in your ability to connect to it. So it's 50-50. And then at some point, the staleness starts to win out and the SFR starts to drop. And the real question of when you replace the exercise is when its SFR is now lower than another exercise for that muscle group that has a now higher SFR. So if let's say, just give this random units, if a bent over row versus cable row, if we start out with a bent over row having an SFR of 15 and the cable row has an SFR of 12, we choose the bent over row because it's the highest stimulus to fatigue ratio. Now the bent over row starts to climb an SFR and goes all the way up to 18 after a few weeks. And then slowly over time, it falls back to 15, still a great exercise. And then it falls down to 11. Okay, like pretty stale, right? Pretty stale. I mean, this maybe months later, so it could be weeks later. And now you're, when you show up and someone says, hey, why are you doing bent rows? You're like, well, it's because of the exercise in my logbook. It's okay. Is there an exercise you could do like that would hit you better than bent rows? Like what about cable rows? And you have to think about it and you go, fuck, cable rows have an SFR of 12. It literally is better than bent rows. Why am I doing mm -hmm. an exercise that's 11 now or probably be 10 later and then nine and it will suck. So you then, then you think about it and say, okay, cable rows, probably better. So you start cable rows. And after a while, cable rows go up to 15 because you really learned to do them well. And remember, the entire time you're not doing bent rows, then they slowly climb in theoretical potential SFR because the stainless goes away because of the novelty effect and all the joints connective tissues you were beating up with that particular movement start to heal up and everything like that. And then after a while, you get that crossover again where cable rows are now down to 14, 13 again and bent rows come up and now they're 15, 16 again. And then you switch again. You don't have to switch again, but I'll say this, you know, I want to be doing the higher SFR exercises when I'm at the gym. And if there's clear, better alternatives, well, I kind of, I kind of want to do the better alternatives. Uh, a very simple analogy is like, you know, if you have a choice between pasta and sushi, which one do you order? It's the one you want the most and it'll give you the most pleasure for the money that you spend on it. And if you've eaten sushi three times this week, it's not that sushi's bad, it's that pasta's better. And then you have pasta a few times and you get sick of that and you go back to sushi. But if someone's like, hey, what do you want, sushi or pasta? You say, oh, whatever, randomly, I don't care. Like, mm, 
if you thought about it a little bit more, you probably could generate a little bit more pleasure for the money with one of the two of those. So, you know, the SFR and concepts like that, it's all about if you think about training just a little bit deeper than random chance, you're going to use muscles or so you're going to use movements that have a bigger stimulus, a lower fatigue, and on the net balance, make the most logical sense to use. Yeah, and I would guess it's probably pointless to ask uh, what is the duration of where we should keep one exercise because it, the dynamics, how the SFR plays on each exercise is very individual. So there probably is no one specific answer to that. Absolutely. But just for folks listening who may be confused, like, what is it like two days or is it like two years? It's usually on the order of like, I would say on average one to three months. So mm -hmm. if someone tells me they've been hack squatting hard for three months straight and that they still get a lot out of the movement, I'd be pleasantly surprised. Uh, I wouldn't tell like, hey, you got to switch it out. And there's some, some more like technical reasons you could switch it out, preempting joint problems. But just on a general level, yeah, great. That sounds cool. But I, I would be skeptical, right? Um, where someone would say, hey, I did leg press for two sessions in a row and I, 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 I don't like it. I would say, hey, listen, keep doing it a few more sessions because your SFR will probably go up. It may be that you, your foot placement, your back placement, the pad angle, your cadence, maybe you can work on those a little bit and they come back session number three, they, they wiggle with a couple of those variables and they go, oh, wow, my leg press SFR just went up like crazy. And then the next session it goes up again. And then it's weeks and weeks more. So I would say like one to three months, you know, if you're going to switch exercises, unless it hurts or something like that, I would try it for at least one mesocycle. And if you really just don't like it after that, you can dump it. Um, and then anything past three mesocycles of consistent inclusion, I start to get skeptical as to whether or not that really is the best SFR exercise for you and why you haven't rotated it out yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this was about exercises, but back to volume a bit. So from your book uh, of how much should I train, if I remember correctly, you had also the, this idea that we are it is wise to use maintenance volume to resensitize muscles to stimulus. So if muscles, uh, you know, if, if the volume goes up, then muscles become more desensitized to stimulus. If you use less of a volume, you know, pull back a bit, then they tend to resensitize. Can you touch on that a bit? Because this is something that I introduced to my fellow trainer and what he had to say about it was that, well, it's just a theory. I mean, you need more volume, you know, in, in order to, to adapt. So basically, could you a bit elaborate on this idea a bit? Is there like a, an actual scientific or physiological background to it? Or how does this thing work? Yeah, well, so there's direct studies confirming that it is in fact a reality. Um, there is one example, just example of a study, and there have been a few more that uh, similar results, where they trained folks for just a few weeks at a time and then they gave them multiple weeks of break. And then they train them for a few weeks at a time and give multiple weeks of break, no training at all. And at the end of that multi-month period, that group that took tons of breaks got the same muscle and strength gains as a group that trained the entire time. It's like, Jesus Christ, like they trained like literally half the time and they took these crazy breaks. How did they get the same results? Well, the hypothesis is that they got so resensitized to training between bouts of training that the rate of gains at the beginning of each one of those was so high, they managed to catch up to the other group then back off and then catch up again and back off. They say, okay, well, they just discovered a way to get the same results. But yes, with a huge fraction of lower fatigue, because if they trained only half the time, that means they maybe could have had a bodybuilding career that was twice as long until the joint debilitation finally caught up to them. So this is research confirmed. We didn't pull it out of thin air. Another theoretical idea as to why maintenance volumes work is that in sort of, sort of advanced uh, complex adaptive systems, you tend to observe a pretty decent rule 
And it is the rule that maintaining a certain level of adaptation requires much less energy and time input, much fewer resources than increasing that adaptation. Okay, maintaining in almost every facet of life, maintaining is easier than improving. So for example, like you speak Finnish as your first language, I assume, yeah? Actually, it's Estonian. But Estonian, it's really, oh! Yeah, but it's really cool. similar to, to Finnish, so. That's really, awesome. Really well, you know, so do you know who uh, Andros Muromets is? Fuck yeah, I know him. So if you said no, I'd be like, this, this call is over. Oh, I know um, him. I, I, I've spoken to him and, you know, he knows who I am. And, and, and That's yeah. really cool. He owns Did a really big... That- yeah, he owns a really big gym, gym chain in here in Estonia. Oh, wow. Good for yeah. him. So um, did you know that there are three mythical Russian strongmen in like literally folklore and one of them is named Muromets? Really? <laughs> is he? Yeah. But, but he, he's considered as Russian. Yeah, same, same. Eastern European. So, you know, maybe he's from Estonia. But it's just it's just interesting because but it's not even a Russian name. Wurmitz is an Estonian name. Yeah. And it's it's, a, I think he comes from like a genetic line of just super freaks because like they had books written about his ancestors. It's just like a super, super cool thing that, you know, it's rarely, rarely do you see like someone with a legendary name show up because when he showed up for World's Strongest Man, he had like the best grip strength in the entire world. It was like, who the, who the hell is this guy? He just came out of nowhere. Um, in any case, good God, I lost my train of thought altogether. Um, what the hell was that? What the hell was I talking about with, uh, um, the, the, the idea of M- language, MV, yeah, yeah, yeah. resensitization. My bad. So it, you speak Estonian and uh, there's two questions. How much effort would you have to expend to conserve your ability to speak Estonian? Well, she, man, maybe 20 minutes of conversation a day in Estonian and you would get no worse at it. Now, here's another question. How much would you have to study to get better at Estonian, increase your vocabulary, become more eloquent with how you use a language. Fuck, man, hours of studying and watching YouTube videos and taking classes at the university. It's much, much, much harder. It's not like if you speak a few more hours of Estonian per day, you're going to get better. What the fuck? You're an adult male. You're not going to be better at speaking language. You have to have an intensive intervention because you're so advanced at Estonian. But you can mm-hmm. continue to speak Estonian at a high level. Even if you move to America for a few years and just like talk to your parents on the phone every now and again, you won't get much worse at it. And as a matter of fact, if you get worse, when you come back to Estonia, you'll be here four or five days and then you'll speak as best, as good of Estonian as you've ever spoken. That is a really extreme example because of language, but it applies to almost every other complex adaptive system. Musical ability, strength, hypertrophy. Turns out it just doesn't take much to keep a quality going as opposed to improving it. And we also know that if you decrease something to maintenance volume, the fatigue and uh, resistance to adaptation with it starts to fall over the long term, over weeks and weeks and weeks. And we can see this with something like pump and soreness and bind-muscle connection. If you just do two or three sets of five per week for biceps, your biceps will get no, in their hard sets, they'll get no smaller. They will stay the same. You do it for two or three weeks, you have the same size biceps, except what do you have now? If you do a normal bicep workout, it's going to annihilate you and cause crazy, crazy growth because it's so much different than you've seen before because you've been slacking off. Your adaptive systems have reinvigorated, but good news, you didn't lose anything because you were at maintenance volume. And for advanced lifters, just like for languages, maintenance volume and what we can call maximum adaptive volume, sort of the average between that minimum effective and maximum recoverable where you get your average best gains, it starts to separate out a lot you know, maintenance volume for biceps could be five sets a week. MAV could be 15 sets a week. 
So, you know, there's a huge gap between them, a gap that can drop a ton of fatigue and can resensitize you extensively. And the thing is, most sport coaches at a high level intuitively understand these concepts. So for example, and this is very common in Eastern Europe, if an Estonian athlete wins their event at the Olympics, they come back, they often take one, two, or three months off of the sport completely. It doesn't matter what sport they're in because they give the body time to rest and heal and say, oh my God, they're going to lose everything to start from day one. Bullshit. A few weeks after hard training resumes, they're as good as they've ever been or very close. So I think a lot of lifters resist the concept of maintenance volume because they're paranoid about losing their gains. And you do you lose a little bit uh, at first then the losses stop, and then they come back way better than before. You've healed all your injuries. Your adaptations can go much better. The idea that you need to go and go and go and constantly crush it in order to get your best gains is simply false and will lead to a, a place where you don't get your best results. And in the bodybuilding community, uh, even in the drug-using part of the community, it's pretty standard practice to take like weeks off of training every year in order to let the body resensitize to better gains. And guys will tell you, like, look, when I was younger, I never took any time off. Had a lot of joint connective tissue problems. I didn't really grow at a very impressive rate. The uh, first time I took two or three weeks off, I was paranoid. I hated it. When I came back, I was a little smaller, a little weaker. And then three months later, I was like enormously jacked, way more than before. My joints felt incredible. So not only is it theoretically feasible, not only do we have direct studies confirming it, but the folks who do it swear by it because it just obviously works right there in the real world. Mm -hmm. The language analogy was pretty good. Even though Estonian is a really messed up language, it's really difficult to learn. Uh, back when I was in high school, my Estonian class was also, I got a C. But uh, what is equivalent of a United States SAT exam uh, for English, I remember I got like 85 out of 100 or something like that. That's, real, that's sweet. English but, is not yeah. that hard. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's, it's so widespread. You know, I learned my English pretty video games. That's yeah. awesome. But, okay, I know we are reaching the time limit here, but, you know, if you have the time to touch on the last uh, topic, and I know it is impossible to, um, to elaborate on this topic really fast, but, you know, give it, give it all your best. What I also have really wanted to ask you is uh, uh, progression for hypertrophy, intensity versus volume. I know that you have had the debates, I think, with Eric Helms, you know, which is better, which should be tracked like volume or intensity. I am more all, all also opted for the volume side because, you know, you adapt to the work that you do. But then again, what is the argument of the intensity side? You know, all the remaining minutes that you are able, willing to give me, touch on that, that, that subject and then we can wrap this up. Yeah, so I think the first thing we have to look at before we take a look at the various progression schemes and their competition between themselves is just general correlates of what tends to correlate with muscle size. If you lift as heavy as possible, but lift to the very low volume, are you going to get really, really big? The answer is probably not. Now, if you lift not so heavy, but lift with a considerable volume, do you get big? Yeah, you get huge. You don't get very strong or as strong as you could have. So if we were debating powerlifting progression, intensity progression is king. I mean, volume progression gives a shit how much volume you're doing. Yeah, volume is a tool by which you introduce lots of intensity, but for its own sake, it doesn't really correlate much with strength performance. There's a very tight range in which volume operates in, in strength. A little bit too much volume is way too much. A little too little is way too little. You just have to find your golden volume zone and then progress with intensity. For hypertrophy, it's a little bit of the other way around where the, the, generally speaking, the intensity range just doesn't really matter as long as all the sets are taken close to failure 
you how much volume you do is much more indicative of uh, your goals. So automatically, just from sort of a theoretical framing right up front, when people say like, well, I'm not so sure about volume progression and, and hypertrophy, I'm like, well, why? Volume is this really important thing that uh, it seems to be like, you know, like that's kind of what, you know, does a lot of the stuff. So why wouldn't you progress it? And, uh, but that's all a little bit of a red herring. The reality is you have to progress uh, volume and intensity for their own reasons, right? It's kind of independent reasons. The reason you progress intensity in hypertrophy training is to make sure each set is sufficiently difficult to keep you in the rep range that you're targeting. So if you used to be able to do something for sets of eight uh, with two reps in reserve, and now you got stronger, now it's five reps in reserve, which, you know, you should probably put more weight on the bar if you want to hit sets of eight, because you're starting to get real far from failure and you might not be getting really great results anymore. So you add low to the bar, intensity, uh, another way of saying it, in order to keep the sets sufficiently difficult. What about volume? Well, your body can adapt to volume. And when you start out with a certain protocol, certain sets, reps, uh, exercises, you can't really do much volume because you can't recover from much. And also your body's so sensitive to hypertrophy, you don't need much. But as the weeks wear on, your body can learn to recover much faster from volume. And we know theoretically that top end hypertrophy volumes occur pretty high, like in the 15 to 25 sets per week range from, for many people. So if you start out doing, you know, eight sets per week of squats, and it turns out after several weeks, you could comfortably recover from 12 or 14 or 16 sets. The question back is, why aren't you doing that many sets? And you could say, well, you know, like I like to progress in intensity and we we'll say, okay, do you just want to get really strong? They say, no, I want to put on size. Like, okay, well, we know that the best size gains occur maybe in the 15 to 20 range for your particular situation. And you were getting great gains because you just started in the eight to 10 set range. Why aren't you doing more? And, and it's not just theoretical, practical. So for example, we said that, you know, tension and burn, pump and soreness are all kind of relatively important indicators to show that at least you're sort of pushing your body to its limits, right? And this is where kind of like the real talk sort of colloquial more convincing argument for volume progression comes up. And, and here it is. If someone's, you know, someone says, man, I had a really good back workout. So like, how do you know? Right. And they say, well, you know, I got pumped. I got sore. I felt my muscles a lot. I got really tired. Okay, cool. You know, I agree with you. That probably means you have a pretty good workout. Right? Could have been doing too much, but you certainly weren't doing too little because you got pretty beat up. Now, weeks and weeks later, after doing this back workout and changing the volume, not at all, you could be in a position where you do this entire back workout and someone's like, pretty good workout. And you're like, um, I don't know, like, the, what, the, did you get a pump? You're like, not really. Like, did you get tired? Like, did your reps start to fall off? Like, no, not really. Uh, did you get sore afterwards? Like, no. Like, is there a chance that you're growing really well? Yeah, there's a chance that you're probably growing some. Is there a chance you're maximizing your gains? Man, I'm just not really willing to believe that. That's not my first inclination. If, if the entire sort of training is predicated on challenging your body's physiological systems and you're clearly not exhibiting nearly as much of a challenge as you used to, don't we want to do maybe a little bit more to challenge ourselves? And you could say, well, you raise the weight on the bar. Well, that makes the individual sets harder and they should already be hard. But like, look, if I say, look, you got to train your quads and you can only do it with two working sets. Fuck, how heavy can you make the shit? At some point, your reps just start falling. You start going to failure and two sets to failure is just not much. And you say, well, what if I did four? Would I grow more? Well, the direct literature says yes. And also your own body says yes, because two sets just doesn't do anything for you anymore. So the way I view volume progression is not you know, proactive, like we just have to try to do more and more and more all the time. You do as much volume as gives you a really good workout based on you know pomp and soreness and recovery and progression. And then if it just happens to be that you've adapted to it over time, 
you can probably add a little bit more because you need more, you know, like, uh, because clearly your body's well adapted to it. And, and the same thing occurs in a variety of other training circumstances. Like, you know, try learning the Estonian language at first, you know, 15 minutes of spoken Estonian is tough and writing it is really hard. But after a while, you get really good at it. Gee, you know, like people in kindergarten probably do 15 minutes of Estonian writing a day. People in the fifth grade, if all you had was 15 minutes of Estonian, what the fuck are you going to school for six hours for, right? You can do more without getting it to be too much. You should probably do more because you'll benefit more. Uh, that, that's uh, as far as I'm concerned, uh, a sort of basic principles, why at least theoretically the volume progression argument makes sense. And it's not because you're, again, it's not because you're progressing like, oh, like, do more volume, really good things happen. It's more like, am I getting my best results with this current level of volume? At first, the answer is yes, and then the answer slowly, incrementally becomes more no, probably not, right? Uh, and, you know, maybe then you do a little bit more volume. We're not saying add 15 sets to your workout. We're saying add one or two and see how you feel. And then if, if for example, you consistently, without adding any volume, are getting really sore, hugely pumped, nasty fatigue, don't increase sets because you don't need to. Like I'll go weeks without increasing any sets and some exercises in some situations I'll increase, I'll add a set every week for four weeks. Mm -hmm. It's all an auto-regulated thing. What I seem to have struggled with some of the folks that I've debated with in the past about volume progression is this kind of bias against it to begin with. And I say, look, in an auto-regulatory manner, all the checkboxes are saying, look, we probably benefit from more volume. Why do we have this bias against adding volume? And I never got a really good answer to that, uh, but that was always what sort of bothered me about it. How does progression with reps and reserve tie into this? So basically the reps and reserve is, uh, you, are you training hard enough, right? Are you training hard enough per set? And then how many number of sets, that's volume. So the two concepts are, are relatively independent. There's definitely some time, relatively independent. And you can say, I just want to train a two RIR the entire time. And that's a fine idea. It works mm -hmm. real well. The problem is you're never really quite sure, are you doing two RIR? Two RIR is hard to estimate, even for advanced people, where like maybe it's two RIR, but maybe you weren't trying, maybe it's three, maybe you really overdid it, maybe it was one. You're always left kind of second guessing. Also, at the beginning of a mesocycle, we are not used to eat exercises, reps, so on and so forth. Even three RIR is a really robust stimulus, but better SFR because it's very low fatigue compared to two RIR. So if you start a mesocycle at roughly three RIR and you seek to add a little bit of load or a few repetitions each time, eventually you knock into failure and that guarantees that you're trying hard enough. You, you'll never look back training like that and say, fuck, man, I've just apparently been sandbagging this whole time. I could have been getting great results because, you know, you could think you're doing two RIR and then a training partner comes from another gym it really pushes you. And it turns out with good technique, without a ton of psychosis, you get six more reps on each set. I mean, this has been demonstrated in the literature numerous times. You'd be like, I'm a fucking idiot. Like, but you'd say, well, you know, that felt like two RIR. I don't want to add load yet. I don't want to add reps. It's just two RIR. A lot of times you can hamstring yourself for no reason. Uh, I think it's a, a better to do a feed forward relative effort progression, uh, not feedback. So you just, every time you add either two and a half kilos or repetition, and, you know, some small amount, and automatically your RIR will start to fall until it hits zero. And then you know you're trying hard enough. You usually hit MRV very close to that. You recycle, repeat, and push on and on again. And that really gives you the best combination because all the best hypertrophy results occur in the three to zero range anyway. So all that is really good training. But also because you knock into zero every now and again, you're kind of shit testing yourself to make sure you're pushing yourself appropriately hard. Mm-hmm. Okay, man. Uh, so we have reached the one hour mark, even gone past that slightly. Uh, what can I say? Uh, thank you so much, Mike. It has been a privilege. And thank you so much again for this opportunity.
uh, I will be following your work and all my listeners will also. And you know, I'll make sure to let Andros Muromets know that you were on this show and uh, I'll, I'll make him listen to it. Oh my God. Well, tell him I think he's mythical and amazing and I, I'm a huge, huge fan of a straw man career. I used to cheer for him all the time. Uh, so that would be wonderful. Uh, Slim, thanks for, for having me on. And if um, in a few months down the line, you feel bored and want a shitty guest to come back on your podcast, let me know and we'll do this again. Sure, man. I mean, I'll make sure to do that. So Awesome. So, yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, man. Have a good day. Thanks. Take care.